Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and tonight we have an unbelievable show. I've been trying to get this guy for about over a year. His name is uh, Gil Carrillo, and he's the uh, case detective of the Night Stalker case back from 1984, 1985. And he also retired as a 38-year veteran out of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, where he headed up their homicide squad. So uh, with me tonight, of course, is straight out of Brooklyn, my co-host, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. This is just what an unbelievable uh, detective that uh, we're going to meet tonight and an unbelievable case. Gil, could you just uh, fix your uh, your screen a little bit? You're, uh, it's cutting your head off there. I can't hardly see you. That's there, the, go. there you go. Much, much better. We're going to play a little bit of our theme song and we'll get right into the show. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. It's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes, even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just saying enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. It's so my pleasure to uh, have Gil Carrillo on tonight. Uh, I, I would say he's probably a, a a super veteran, if you want to call someone with 38 years that does a, a police job for 38 years. Plus, Gil, I wanted to let everyone know you're a Vietnam veteran. And that, as far as your story goes, that was one of the ways uh, you stayed out of trouble and you somehow wind up back in the police service. You want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, that's that's right. I was a youngster, and the cop took me home and told my parents to sign for me to get off the streets or live up dead or in prison. And at age 17, I went into the Army and ended up in Vietnam, so that straightened my ass out. So you uh, you, you had even action in Vietnam, right? Yes. So as I recall, you worked on helicopters? Yes. Wow, amazing. And so when you came home, was it the, the cop that sort of impacted your life? Is that what uh, sort of got you into wanting to be in law enforcement? For sure. For sure. I wanted to be able to give back what was once given to me. So when you, now you're uh, bilingual, I would imagine, right? Yes. So that must have helped you tremendously in the LA uh, area. You know, I, I had asked you when we spoke on the phone, the difference between the Los Angeles County Police and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office. And could you explain that to our uh, listeners? Well, there, there really isn't. We're, we're all police officers, and there is no uh, animosity. We, we play around with each other, but it's all the same kind of police work, and we get along good with them. It's like the NYPD when we used to have housing, transit, and PD. And when you were in the academy, you were like, oh, no, God, no, don't get transit. Oh, my God, I'm transit. Or, or if you got housing, even. Housing just worked in the housing projects. Everyone, of course, wanted to be NYPD. And then when the three departments merged, it was just, uh, you know, it was academic after that. Everyone got to work everywhere. And still Guilty no one wants charged, to. Bill. Guilty as charged. That's right. And, uh, Phil was a transit cop. No one, you know, they, they call the, you have the extra added, uh, you know, dangers in transit of breathing in that steel dust, you know. Radios that didn't work and uh, things like that. But Gil, I just want to thank you for your service on both levels, both in the military and 38 years in law enforcement. It's just so great to meet you. Um, well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, I, I, I really uh, got to tell you, uh, Bill and I have been talking about uh, this episode that we're doing tonight. And, uh, you know, being in law enforcement and, uh, you know, uh, we're both retired as we are now. Uh, we've meet, met so many great people. Uh, Joe Pistone, who was the the real Donnie Brasco, uh, FBI retired FBI agent that infiltrated the mob, and now we have a, another great uh, a historical uh, detective that uh, 
obviously worked on the Night Stalker, Night Stalker case. And uh, just doing some research on that case is just really, really wild. I, I do have a, a question I'd like to throw at you. Um, I know that the case started in 84. Uh, some of the stuff that I picked up on, is it possible that he had committed other murders prior to that and they just, um, you know, they didn't uh, put it together? Is it possible he may have committed some other murders or do you think that everything that he uh, was responsible for was uh, was connected to him? He says he was good for four more murders that we didn't find. Um, but who knows? We looked at about eight of them, but there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute him on, so we just let him go. You know, Gil, one of the things that I watched, uh, I watched a bunch of interviews with you, and I, I think uh, with serial killers, there's always some psychosexual element to what they're doing. And I think that's no exception in uh, Richard Ramirez. Uh, probably everything he he did was uh, had a sexual motive to it. But and and watching the Netflix case and as well as reading as much as I, I did about it, this guy was one of the most vicious guys that I've ever witnessed. And I, I mean, I worked in homicide my last ten years on the job. I was sixteen years in the detective bureau. I worked in anti-crime. Did all of that stuff. And you meet some vicious people along the way. I don't think I ever met someone as vicious as this guy. Well, he was pretty vicious. That, that's for sure. And he had absolutely no remorse over anything he did. And, you know, when you said uh, the point was that it was tough to pigeonhole this guy, to put a, a linkage or a pattern behind him, because he used all different types of weapons. He used firearms. He used uh, blunt instruments. He used knives. Uh, the, the guy just was, he just used whatever he felt like using that that night. And that makes you believe when you're, when you don't know who it is, when the person isn't identified, this is a different guy because he's not using a gun. Sometimes you think that way. It's not the yeah. same gun. You know, oh, he used a knife this time. It fits the MO except for this and except for that. You want to speak upon that? Well, his only consistency was his inconsistency. You know, he, he did everything. He did manual strangulation, ligature strangulation, blunt force trauma, uh, stabbing instruments, shooting you know, he shot some, he beat some, and he stomped some to death. So there was just a multitude of methods of his, to his madness. You know, I had also read something about he um, he was never the same after his uncle came home from Vietnam and showed him photographs of what he had done to some of the, uh, the Vietnamese. And supposedly that messed up his mind. But I can't think that that uh, made him become a serial killer. I, I don't know. I didn't care about what he had done before. I just wanted to convict him for what he was doing now. Right. You know, Billy, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me, and I think you touched on it briefly there, uh, his M.O. was so all over the map. I mean, victimology-wise, I mean, his victims ranged from, you know, uh, 79, 80 years old all the way to uh, – a five-year-old child. So that was one of the other things that kind of jumped out. Usually in, in uh, serial killers, they kind of have a, uh, a a specific category that they go after. Uh, also, his uh, his uh, uh, comfort zone seemed to be like wherever he found himself. I don't think he really uh, felt comfortable in one specific area because he was around so many different areas uh, when he was doing his dastardly deeds. So uh, did, did that during the investigation, Gil, did that kind of throw you guys off that uh, when these things were happening or was it kind of put together real quickly that it was all uh, the, the work of the same? No, it, 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 it wasn't put together correctly. And it also really uh, made the case difficult to work on. I'm but sure. we were ultimately able to put it together. You know, Gil, I want to play a little bit of a file tape from from back then. Uh and you're, you're obviously you're in it and you look a hell of a lot younger than you do now, but uh, we, we, we've all, we've all aged. So um, let me play a little bit of this. Uh, the murders usually happened at night and often the killer simply slipped through an open door window. We stayed awake all last night. There were lights on and 
I made Steve stay away because I'm so scared. The fear would spread with each brutal killing. From June of 1984 to August of the next year, 13 people would die. Those that survived the attacks were often raped, beaten, and left clinging to life. We can catch this guy and get rid of him. And uh, I think everybody was better. No one felt pressure to stop the killings more than Detective Gil Carrillo. He worked day and night to catch the man who will always be remembered as the Night Stalker. Everything was sexually driven and motivated. Those surviving victims are those that acquiesced to his commands. Those that didn't died. While sex drove the killer, there was no consistent pattern for authorities to follow. His victims ranged in age from teenagers to seniors. And as for the method of murder, Knives, guns, ligature, strangulation, you name it, he ran the gamut. Pentagrams marked some of the crime scenes. The Night Stalker was a devil worshiper. And as grisly as his crimes were, Carrillo reluctantly admits he needed the suspect to strike again if he was going to catch him. We needed to get more evidence to get that. We needed a break. The break came in Mission Viejo. A teenager spotted a suspicious man driving this car through the neighborhood. Police later found the stolen car abandoned. Inside, they found a fingerprint belonging to a Richard Ramirez. The print matched another one found at one of the crime scenes. The Night Stalker now had a face and a name, which authorities quickly released to the public. The next morning, somebody sees him on a bus, and they look at his photo, and the rest is history. Julio Burgoyne would play a part in that history. After being spotted on a bus, Ramirez fled on foot to this East L.A. neighborhood. He tried to steal a car, and Julio, his father, and others grabbed him, beat him, and held him. Only then did residents realize who Ramirez was. And people at the newspapers saying, that's him, that's him, the uh, murderer. Or... The night stalker was in custody, and now authorities had to keep him there. The evidence in court would be overwhelming. This is one of the two handguns Ramirez used during the killing spree. Authorities were able to connect him to this weapon through ammunition, which he kept in a bus locker. Fingerprints tied him to the scene. There were shoe prints, too. And, of course, there were the survivors who identified Ramirez as the killer. The M.O. in many of these events was to uh, murder the husband, sexually assault the wife, but let the wife live. And uh, some of these women did come in and testify, and it was horrible. The 27-year-old also did his part to seal his own fate. When he came to his court appearance, he raised his right hand, said, Hail Satan, and he had a pentagram uh, drawn on his hand. For Gilles, there was little doubt. Ramirez was found guilty and sentenced to death. And even though decades later he's still alive on death row, Alan Yogelson is satisfied. A very, very dangerous person um, was taken off the streets. You know, Gil, uh, one of the things, a couple of things I wanted to ask now. First of all, would in this day and age, say we had a Richard Ramirez in 2022, he would get caught much quicker, wouldn't he? Because of video surveillance, um, probably digital evidence, things like that. It's why serial killers, I think, are so rare these days, is because of you know the whole world is wired up with video. And I know you. Go ahead. You want to say something? No, I don't. I don't really know. If we would catch him any sooner. Now, the evidence that you had, obviously, you had some fingerprints, you had uh, footprints, you had ballistic evidence, right? We had uh, footprints, and we only had one set of fingerprints, and uh, we had some ballistics. But the fingerprint that was in the house, that was it was compared to the fingerprint in the car, and that, and that matched, and that that ultimately identified uh, Richard Ramirez. But up until that point, they were, he wasn't identified, right? Yeah, well, he wasn't because at that time we didn't have uh, fingerprints were not in the computers yet. You know, oh, only there was misdemeanors, no uh, only felonies were in the computer. So there was no, no prints uh, for us to find. How difficult was it back then to keep the lid on the investigation and to keep the necessary things secret that keeps the integrity of the investigation together. How tough was that? It was extremely difficult and we worked well with LAPD. 
And who, like, did did everyone involved in the investigation, was everyone privy to all the insider information of, regarding the case? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last question. Yeah, I'm saying, was everyone that worked on this investigation, were they all uh, privy to know the insider information in regards to this case? No. So was it limited to a certain amount of investigators that, that uh, knew all of the, the secret information? Yes. Because, you know, many times your worst enemy are other cops, you know, sure. other detectives, they, you know, they, uh, they want to leak something to the press and that can destroy a case like this, just totally destroy it. Yeah. And they did. So there it, was some, there was some leaks then. Yeah. Could you, could you elaborate on, on that? On what, what kind no, of leaks No, just that somehow some information got out. We know how that goes, Billy. That 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 sure. uh, happens quite frequently. You know, you try to keep things close to the vest. But uh, a quick story: I had a a guy in a trunk one time. Uh, it was a mob hit, and we had a reporter that was she was a real pretty girl, young girl, and she was trying to woo the sergeant into giving her information. And at the end of uh, her asking us and nagging us several times, the sergeant just blurted out one thing to her, and she printed it. He said, "We like to say the victim died of lead poisoning," and uh, she printed that. And police headquarters uh, in one police plaza, they made a call uh, the next day after it was in the paper. They were furious that uh, such a thing, you know, must have been a complaint from the family. So little things like that could get out at times and uh, pretty tough. I just want to elaborate on one thing. I think what Billy was trying to get at earlier, uh, in today's world, with all the technology with cell phones and cell towers, and just about every house has a ring doorbell camera or some type of video surveillance, in this day and age, had this guy been committing these heinous crimes, it might have been a little bit uh, quicker to maybe uh, identify him or track through, you know, if, if he was carrying a cell phone, you know. Is, is that like what you were getting at, Bill? Yeah, yeah, exactly that, yeah. What, yeah, we just didn't have the ring cameras and stuff like that when this right, went on. Right, right, Gil, you know, I want to, like, loosen you up a little bit. Did, during that whole 14-month investigation, did you ever go out for drinks? With other detectives? Did I ever go out and drink? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I said, did you ever go out for drinks with other it's detectives? A, you call us spitballing. Yeah, you go out and talk about the case at the local bar, you know, try to come up with, we call it hypothesizing and theorizing, we used to say, yeah, you know. we didn't have much time with that because we were working so hard and we didn't have time to go out and drink. Yeah, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, you know what? I, I think that, you know, based on what was going on, I mean, this guy was killing four people in one night and, uh, you know, you really had a, a real focus on trying to get this guy. I mean, it was really a matter of life and death finding this, uh, this scumbag, you know? So, uh, I understand where you're coming from with that. Uh, again, I'm sure this being, being a detective that worked on homicide cases and, and I've told people that I've looked into the eyes of the devil several, several times. And one particular case, uh, there were two guys that were actual serial killers. They killed people, uh, just because they didn't like them. I mean, they, they, uh, kidnapped a priest to take his car to carjack him. And when they, uh, let him go. They, they let him go and, and told him, go ahead, Father, walk into the woods. And, hey, Father, they turned around. They shot him in the face. He wound up living and, and testifying against him. But I will never forget how uh, evil and how dark they were and talking to them and doing interviews with them. Uh, it was just really uh, it was upsetting, you know, quite, quite. I, I really believe that I looked into the eyes of the devil. Now, did you have the opportunity to uh, interrogate uh, Ramirez? Yes. Was he cooperative in any way? Did he give a statement? Well, he talked to us. You know, originally he talked in the third person. And once we got a conviction, then he talked to us in the right way. He copped out to the stuff. Okay. You know, Gil, can when, you, talk when about you about that, Gil, or no? What's that? Can you talk about, can you discuss any of what he told you uh, when you did your interviews with him? No. Okay. Gil, uh, I had spoken to you on the phone, and there was one, to me, uh, one of the most heinous parts of this investigation um, invo involved a little girl uh, who was six years old when she was um, sexually abused by Ramirez. And to me, it was just so horrible to think how her life was shattered by this guy. 
And um, to my dismay, you told me that you still stay in contact with this this who, young girl who was six years old at the time. Now she's a grown woman with a family of her own, and she's got her life together, and she's uh, she's become a very productive citizen and been able to she establish. Has. She's a beautiful lady. Wow, that's an unbelievable thing, and it's it's so great to hear uh, to hear that like the human spirit can overcome. You know this. Uh, the only way you could call uh, Ramirez is, is Diablo, you know, this devil. And uh, I, I was so happy to hear. And you and you you stay in contact with her, right? Yes. That Amazing. that's just such a traumatic thing for someone to be able to go through that. And uh, you know, obviously, there's, there's scars that'll never be healed. But to be functional in life and be successful, that's a great thing. And uh, we applaud that. Uh, God bless that young lady. Uh, I'm just hope she, she continues to be, uh, uh, you know, functional and okay in life. I so I also hope the same thing. You know, Gil, uh, one of the things I wanted to, uh, I know you can't really get deep into the uh, night, night stalker, but let's talk about serial killers per se and, and the challenges that these big cases and you, from, from the, your role as a detective and investigator, and also your role as a squad commander, as a lieutenant that ran a homicide squad. Talk a bit about the high-profile cases and how they demand different things than just, say, the run of the although no homicide is run of the mill. But a high-profile case demands a lot more concentration, a lot more personnel, and a lot more secrecy as far as letting information get out to the press. Yes. Would you, yeah, would you speak about that? Well, there, there's really not much to say. We can't let uh, information out to the press. We try to keep it close to our best, and we don't release it. And hopefully we'll solve it before it gets out public. But that's sometimes difficult to do uh, in regards to just all the personalities you have and people trying to uh, trade off information for whatever their their uh, own selfish motives may be. Yes, and that happens. Uh, that happens all the time on our police department too. Now, did you request during this investigation, or say any other major uh, serial killer or major investigation, did you ever request help from the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit? Yes, we did. And did that? Yes, did they that... didn't give us much help because nobody had uh, nobody had ever done what we were alleging. So there wasn't much help. Yeah, I think the behavioral uh, analysis of the FBI at that time was probably in its infancy stage. And yes. like you just stated, Gil, I mean, uh, if you want to give a profile on what this guy was doing, there was obviously nothing close to that. I mean, he was all over the map, this guy. Yeah, for sure. You know, Gil, there was a, uh, and this was a, a glaring uh, thing that happened during the Night Stalker case, and it was, the shoe footprint, uh, which was of a very sp specific shoe that was identified, and then some chief on your job, for whatever reason he had, gave it to uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, who was, uh, what was she? the she was uh, the mayor. The mayor at the time. She was the mayor. Of and then she, she went and released it to the press, and that could have just blown your whole investigation to smithereens exactly. right there. Yeah, those are the type of things that we would encounter in the NYPD. See, a lot of times we would try to keep things close to the vest, but the chief of detective's office, there would be people going up the line that would be monitoring the case. And sometimes they would, uh, you know, do a quick press conference or give something to a reporter or give information to deputy commissioner of public information. And next thing you know, stuff that we're trying to keep close to the vest, you pick up a newspaper and the next day there it is, you know, which uh, was always problematic for me. And, and Billy could talk about that as well. Uh, you know, you, sometimes it's real hard to keep a lid on it, you know? You know, Gil, the NYPD had a policy of uh, pretty much giving everything to the press, which was really, really pissed us off many times, you know? Yeah. Uh, we, we had these two guys, uh, a prostitute and her boyfriend that killed this 90 year old Holocaust survivor. And we had just got, gotten him and his brother, his, his brother was an accomplice, uh, identified. And I got a call in the morning, uh, from the deputy commissioner of public information. Uh, they said, what's going on with the case? I said, Oh, uh, we have everyone identified. 
and we're ready to go out uh, and go pick them up. And there's a silence on the end. He goes, yeah, uh, well, well, I go, well, what? He goes, what's their names? I said, I'm not giving you their names because they're not really, right. And if you release their names to the press, they're going to lawyer up and we'll never get a statement. Yeah. So, so this little weasel from DCPI, he hands the phone to a full inspector who outranks me by like four ranks, you know, and he gets on the phone screaming at me, who are you to tell him about? I said, inspector, take it easy. The chief told me not to give you that information. And I developed that instant lie. <laughs> and then we went out and we picked them up and uh, we got full statements from all of them. And then I called deputy commissioner of public information and gave them their names, you know, but Good. think of a department working against their own investigators because they want to be, they want to kissy, you know, kissy feely with the press, which is ridiculous. You know, you, you know, guilt 38 years on the job, uh Vietnam veteran. I am sure that there's something else that happened in your life other than the Night Stalker case. Is there anything that jumps out that uh, you'd like to talk about? I'm sure 38 years just uh, in the police department alone. And then uh, the time in Vietnam, I'm sure there's no, no, not at all. Okay. Nothing. nothing Okay. I'm a lucky man to be alive. Things went well. I, I like I like your uh, demeanor. I like your demeanor. You're a very modest guy. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Gil, just talk a, a little bit about the difference between being a detective where you're just responsible for yourself and then being a homicide squad commander, whereas now you're responsible for all your personnel. I think you told me you had 15 detectives. Is that correct? I had 14. 14. 14 so, investigators working for me. So, and now, now you're the commanding officer. And all the tricks that you used to pull on your old commanding officer, you know those tricks. So now, they're not going to get over on you, uh, Gil. So, That's right. But uh, how is it? How do you feel different in that position than you did as a detective? You don't need to feel different. You know, you let them work their cases. Bingo. Don't get involved in them. I love it. I love it, Gil. So you, you, don't, you don't micromanage at all? No, not at all. You know, that's the best thing, that's the, best, the, the best boss you can have, but... See, on the NYPD, uh, at least in the last few years, they had a tendency to uh, micromanage micromanage through what we call a checklist. They would have like, you know, a homicide checklist. And this famous chief, I won't say his name, he was very proud of the investigative checklists and the investigative aids that he gave to detectives. And he more or less wrote this manual. And instead of copywriting, so he could claim it for his he'd let the department have it which i i never fully understood but anyway the whole the department became you know the detective bureau was investigation by checklist and it got a little bit crazy because oh did you do this did you do that did you do this did you do that and you know something like for example something like a building canvas if you find out who the purpose and you lock them up do they still want the building canvas in my view no but 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 these idiots would Where's the building? We caught the guy. Why do we need a building canvas? You know, it got to be to that level of, of ridiculousness, mm. you know. You, you know, oh, go ahead, Gil. Well, listen, I think, you know, unless you got a bunch of more questions, I think I'm just not feeling well tonight. Uh, I wish I could stay longer. All right, you know, Gil, that, that's fine. I know you were traveling overnight. And, uh, you know, why don't we, uh, in say, you know, uh, uh, once you're free, even more free to speak about, um, the night stalker case, I know you said in a couple of weeks, uh, they may be, uh, cutting you loose, but, uh, you know, why don't you come back on another time? Sounds good. Would that be okay? Gil, you know, so thank you so much. We're going to stay on the air and talk a little bit more, but I can remove you and thank you so much. For coming on, and we'll st- Gil, we'll stay in touch. Thank you. It was you. so Thank great you to meet you, Gil. Thank it you. It was so wonderful, much. and we're looking forward to having you back, Gil. Take care now, Gil. So Philly, uh, an amazing man. Uh, amazing. You talk about modest, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, I say he's a very modest guy. Yeah, really modest guy. And uh, when I try to ask him, no, that's it. That was the case that the Night Stalker. Oh, you know, it was good. He was a detective in the Homicide Squad. He obviously worked on that case as well as many others. I, uh, in his bio, I read between seven and 800 murder cases he was involved in or investigated. And he said something that I always say about the good bosses on the NYPD. Let the detectives detect. And that's what he's basically said. He didn't use that exact uh, wording, but basically he was saying, ah, let them do their job. You know, uh, they know their job. Listen, if you have a good crew of people, and, and you know, Billy, you were a sergeant in Homicide Squad. If you have good guys, they're uh, almost, you know, running, doing what they have to do. And, and you almost don't even have to tell them anything. I mean, obviously, at some point, you know, there's suggestions back and forth and maybe double checking on something. But when you have good people, I, I always remember when I worked in the 6-0 squad in Coney Island, when the, I called it when the bell rang, you know, there was a murder. We would get out there and especially if it was a housing case, because they would send an army. We all knew what we had to do. We all went on different directions, took care of business. We would all meet back at the squad and wherever we were with the case, sometimes it would be days, weeks, months, or even years before we had a perpetrator in custody. But sometimes it was, we'd have the perpetrator in custody later that night. And uh, it just, it was like a well-oiled machine, you know, a couple of bumps in the road here and there with different personalities. But for the most part, uh, when you work with good people, everybody knows what they got, what's got to be done. And, and, you know, based on the case that's in front of you and it, and it got done. You know, I, I, I know that Gil wasn't definitely was not feeling well. Cause I spoke to him on the phone before. And he was much uh, more open, much more uh, giving information. He was uh, giving a lot of like one uh, word answers just now. And um, yeah, I'd love to, ha I'd love to well. have, he wasn't feeling well. I I'd love yeah. to have him back because he's a real gem. I thought you talk about the Mount Rushmore of investigations. Uh, his picture should be up there. He was, uh, you know, an amazing guy. Th this case, this guy, uh, Ramirez was a real devil, a real savage. You know, probably the worst. I think that in in 14 months, he killed 13 people. He had other murders that they attributed to him. I think they said he said four other murders, but yeah, yeah, he did he did 13 murders in in, in 14 months, and um, 15 other people survived his attacks. So talk, talk I was just going to bring that up. There was there was there was actual 14 murders, but. There was all the other, I'm sorry, 13 murders. It was the 14 people that actually survived that could have been killed at, uh, you know, and had this guy kept going, if he had not been caught, God only knows what, uh, what the body count would have been. This guy was a serious psychopath. Yeah. Amazing. You know, folks, this is a police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And, uh, we have a Patreon with three levels, uh, uh, the uh, the bucket polish my rack and uh, dipped in butter, and we also have our YouTube membership with uh, five membership levels. If you could, uh, if you like this show, you want to support us, you could also go on our YouTube. The folks that are in the chat with the green font, they're all part of our YouTube family. We appreciate you guys for giving us all of this support. You know, when I was talking about um, serial killers with um, uh, with Gil, you know. Serial killers, you do need a lot more help with those cases because, as well as high-profile cases, because there's a lot of distractions with high-profile cases. And the big distraction, of course, is the press. And the biggest distraction, of course, is on the NYPD One Police Plaza and the, um, the chiefs and the police commissioner. They're always in, they always have their hands in these big cases. And from my experience in working numerous high profile cases and hundreds of homicides, the best thing to do is let the detectives detect and let them do their job and trust, trust the instincts of your detectives because you're not going to solve the case from one police plaza. I know you're the big boss. You're the chief of detectives. You're the police commissioner. And ultimately you're going to call the shots. You're the boss. But trust your detectives and let them do all the detective work. There's been many times when, Billy, you're 100% right. Um, you get sidetracked because of something that a boss over in police headquarters in, in one police plaza comes up with. Um, I had a lieutenant in Homicide Squad. I'm not going to name him. He was a pretty decent guy. But uh, he would 
because of the bosses breaking his balls in plain English, uh, he would hit you with questions on a case and, you know, you'd say yes, no, done, not done, blah, 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 until he got to a question where you said, I don't know. And then he'd go, uh-huh, you see, I know if the chief asked me that, you don't know, I don't know, and, we, and now I'm going to be embarrassed, so go up, go out and find out that I don't want and I don't know, you know, and it would be something silly, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, can you get fingerprints off of an electrical cord and, you know, and, and he, he would say, I don't know, but we knew you couldn't and things like that. So a lot of times uh, being worried about what questions a chief is going to ask you can actually interfere with or sidetrack the direction of a case. And, and listen, a lot of times when a case was rolling, a lot of the bosses that I worked with would pull back and just let the detectives do what they had to do. You know, we would keep them up to date on what was going on and what, we, what the next step was or who we were going to grab as a witness or, a, or who we think might be a perpetrator. And when it was rolling, they kind of knew to, to pull back. You know, it was the cases that there wasn't a lot of stuff going on when, you know, uh, it was kind of like a, a head scratcher or whodunit where they started coming up with all kinds of crazy, ridiculous stuff. And uh, unfortunately, you'd have to go take care of the things that they came up with because they wanted an answer on it. They gave you something now. They wanted an answer in two minutes. And, you know, obviously you can't give them the answer in two minutes if you got to go out and interview somebody. But doesn't mean they didn't want it that quick. And now with the, you know, we when we were doing these cases, Billy, it was only, let's say, beepers or there was just the introduction of cell phones. Now with the iPhone, you can pull things up and, and have instantaneous information and stuff. So that means they want it that much quicker, you know. So I'm sure it's a little bit more difficult today than it was, let's say, 15, 20 years ago. 100%. You know, I'm just going to pull up a picture here. Um, this is 17-year-old Gil Carrillo uh, in Vietnam where he was a, a helicopter mechanic. A pretty amazing guy. And this is when he came home from Vietnam. You see, he's one hell of a young guy when he um, signed on to, um, I think he came on the department. It was, I think, 1971 or 1972. And this is him as a young cop. And um, this is, of course, uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker you're seeing on the screen. And he would sometimes... The only sometime... thing he's missing is the horns, Bill. The only thing he's missing is the horns. Well, he would draw that pentagram sometimes on the walls of the apartment after he uh, committed murders. And he did that in court. They, they thought almost to try to uh, get a mistrial. But... Uh, they just they silenced him there, and here's Gil Carrillo, uh, uh, probably, you know, around you know a few years probably after the case. But he's been on every every type of TV show to talk about this. But uh, unfortunately, at this point, he's not free to totally talk about this case uh, because he's under contract to a bunch of TV stations. Schmitty, um, what would be the reason to bring back a serial killer case? The I-70 serial killer case has made a resurgence. Big meeting last week with FBI and law enforcement. Smitty, the reason would be that maybe they have uh, information. They also have ways now to um, compare a DNA sample. They, they potentially could have DNA. Uh, you've heard about these DNA databases that with the familial DNA, they've gotten hits off of other serial killer cases. So that could be a reason that they're reopening and giving a fresh look at it. You, you know what else too, Billy? Uh, they could have uncovered another case that fits the profile and they want to link it to whoever it is that they're uh, bringing back. I, on the I-70 case, I guess uh, maybe there's uh, another case they could be looking at. All the things obviously that you cited, there could be a DNA from a case that now with the technology, it's always forever evolving and getting better and better. So maybe there was uh, some type of a link there, uh, some evidence. Sometimes, you know, uh, an inmate in jail gives a dying declaration before he dies about a case or different things like that. Anything's possible. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, that's quite possible. Uh, Ryan Sanford, I feel bad for Bill and Phil, such a great guest to book, and the guy clams up. I felt their pain as they were trying to get the guy to say something. Yeah. You know something? We're, we're, we're professionals at this. Right. Uh, you know something? I could tell you he wasn't feeling well. Uh, you know, Gil is a, is a legend, and we'll have him back on again. You know something? We have to be ready to uh, make, a, make a left turn and, and, and you know, that's why we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Right. Uh, but thank you. Thank uh, Ryan. Thank you for your concern. It was a little bit uncomfortable. It's like, 
you know, when you interview someone, if they give you one word answers, you got to be ready with your next question. You, you're going to be sitting there with silence. But uh, because I have such respect for Gil Carrillo, I uh, believe me, I, I don't feel any uh, any ill will or anything against him. I would just like to have him come on again because I've spoken to him on the phone at, at a better time and he was talkative and he gave me much longer answers than he gave tonight. But uh, suffice it to say that we're okay with it. And luckily I have a co-host that likes to talk a lot. So, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, what, Billy, I, I mean this from my heart. Uh, he obviously wasn't feeling well. The guy is a legend. I mean, look at what fate did for this man that he was brought home by a police officer. It actually changed the complete direction of his life. He went into the military. He became a, a real man. And then he went on to the police force and he was instrumental in solving this horrific, heinous, disgusting, psychopathic murderer. So, I mean, you got to give credit for that. And again, what happened tonight, maybe he wasn't feeling good. He was giving one more answers. I took it as a challenge. And I think that we, we, we are live broadcasters. This show is not on tape. We do it live and that's okay. I mean, if you can't handle that, then, you know, maybe you're not in the right position of uh, what you're trying to do. So it happens. Uh, we actually have even had a little trouble getting him on the, uh, on the hookup. So, but uh, we dealt with it. And, and like you said, we're professionals, we're trying our best and uh, you got to be ready for things like that, especially no, live. Broadcast. 100%. You know, something, when we when he said he had to go, or we we suggested his computer wasn't working, and I we said use your phone. Um, <clears throat> I was I was a little nervous about that because we've had a few disasters using an iPhone. Uh, yeah, yeah. But real you know, with we're, Robo. We're walking through it, so it, it went good. Real with Robo sounds like he really wasn't feeling good. My dad used to answer one word answers when he didn't want to think about something. Mister Gill was great. Please tell him he's a superstar to me. And real with Robo, I feel the same way about him. I was uh, talking to him on the phone. I, I really felt like I was talking to a Babe Ruth, uh, Babe Ruth of investigation. And I still feel that way. Um, you know, some of the things that um, that you know we were talking about too, and we were talking about that serial killer down in uh, Virginia. And so far, they've uncovered five cases against him, and the potential that there are more cases against him um, are very real. Very real because in a short period of time they discovered five bodies on this 35-year-old man who they don't know a lot about. And that's why serial killers and serial killings are so challenging to investigators. Phil, want to comment about that? Absolutely, Billy. I the the guy you're talking of is Anthony Robinson that was uh dubbed the uh uh, shopping cart, shopping cart um, killer, shopping cart killer. And uh, again, we're going to hope and pray that there aren't any other victims, but uh, we both felt that there could be other victims because it doesn't, you know, you don't start out uh, killing people, uh, you know, uh, like it's kind of a gradual process. One of the things that I wanted to get into with Gil was to see if, uh, you know, basically they talked about in, in the research that I did, they said that his uncle coming back from uh, from Vietnam and showing him pictures of what he did to Vietnamese, uh, the enemy, uh, set him off to become a serial killer. I don't know if I just uh, think that alone is what uh, what was the thing that set him off. It, it, you know, usually the M.O. of serial killers, if you go into their uh, their history, their past, uh, a lot of times they were victims of abuse. We talked about it when we had we did the Anthony Robinson case the other day, the shopping cart uh, killer. Uh, a lot of times there's sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, mental abuse, uh, and just plain child abuse uh, that these people have in their past. They usually come from a one-parent household, no father, or an abusive father, things of that nature. So I was curious to get into that. We didn't get that far with Gil. He uh, obviously wasn't feeling good, but uh, it would have been good to to dig down on that and, and just uh, find out a little bit more about his, uh, you know, his childhood growing up since uh, a lot of these serial killers do have that type of uh, childhood. You know, one of the things that I wanted to mention is that for some reason, and uh, it goes also with the real crime community, even on YouTube, people are so enamored and so interested in serial killers. This and even in this case, there were women that were sending this guy love letters. This, this savage who you see on the screen right now, women well, were sending him pro marriage proposals. I mean, it was just... 
He married a journalist. He married a journalist and uh, th th he wasn't allowed to have conjugal visits. So they, they couldn't even consummate this sham of a marriage. But uh, she said uh, that they, they believed the reason that he focused on her. Because like you said, he got uh, letters from many women and, and several marriage proposals. She claimed to have been a virgin and that's what he wanted. He wanted to be married to a virgin and something to do with his satanic uh, beliefs. Uh, it's just completely insane that anyone could find a, a, a psychopathic scumbag like that attractive is uh, just beyond my uh, comprehension. But uh, I guess there are people out there and uh, I don't know, maybe she was looking for her uh, 15 minutes of fame, but uh, they, they actually had a picture of her uh, on one of the, uh, one of the things that I found on the internet. And uh, if you looked at it, she looked, uh, he looks like a, a savage animal. She looked quite normal to me. So uh, you just never know. <laughs> he looked like a savage animal. That, 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 that explains a lot. On the, on the screen, we have a picture of uh, Richard Ramirez with his, his mugshot. And then to the left, we have, that was the sketch that was done uh, many, many years ago in regards to the information that the victims had supplied the police. So it's 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 not all that close, really. I, it's close, but it's not. It's it's very different than how. To we me, actually... I see a big difference in the eyes, Billy. The eyes are completely different. There is some, you know, uh, the shape of the face. I guess the hair is different. Uh, so yeah, there, there's some similarities, but uh, it's not that close. I agree with you, Bill. Yeah, it's and, and that's uh, pretty much the experience that experiences that we have had being on the NYPD with sketches also. We found that most of the time the sketch was not that accurate. They're, they're almost like a generic. You know, when when sketch artists draw, um, try to draw someone, they have, you know, hundreds of eyes. They have hundreds of jawlines, and, and, and the, the, they'll pick these, you know, oh, that, that jawline, you know, they'll, they'll draw that jawline. They'll draw those eyes. They'll draw the cheekbones. So it, it's very difficult for the sketch to become, you know, as, as good as a photograph, obviously. But uh, my experience with sketches, they're usually not uh, a good, you know, a good remake of, of the person they're looking for. You know what, Billy, the, uh, the person that's given the information is obviously key. So, uh, you know, a lot of the sketch artists are very good, but, you know, they can only be good as the person that's given them the information. And again, you have to be able to, you know, you've just been through this traumatic experience most of the time, unless it's just an eyewitness that happened to see the person. And again, you're only seeing them in a flash. If it's a victim, they're obviously traumatized. So to to ask them to recall the person's face, to draw it, that's difficult in and of itself. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the sketch artists try their best. Like you said, they, now it's, it's a lot of times it's digitally done. It used to be done with a, a pencil and a, and a piece of paper. But a, a lot of times now it's uh, digitally done and they have all these different hundreds and hundreds of, like you said, noses, cheeks, eyebrows, you know, things like that. So, uh, I, I mean, it's probably helpful. And th there are some sketches that were dead on and there's others. Look at the David Berkowitz case. Uh, there's always been, uh, you know, conspiracy rumors that uh, that there were several people involved. And if you look at the sketches, they are just so different. It leads you down the path that you could believe that there was more than one person uh, involved in, th in that horrific crime. Uh, I don't think any of the sketches resembled uh, Berkowitz. No, not at all. Not even close. Margaret Hearn, not every uh, one comfortable on camera. God bless retired detective Gil Carrillo and all law enforcement who interact with pure evil to protect us and bring justice for victims' families. Can't imagine PTSD they must have. Uh, absolutely. Just uh, a horrific, horrific criminal. A horrific, you know, and I, I don't know if you guys know the end of this is that he was on death row for 20-something years and he died of cancer, which was, uh, you know, poetic justice however one of the things about the death penalty is and the reason that it costs so much money is because it's really because of uh liberal policies they they challenge these cases and every time it gets closer and closer to when they will execute one of these horrific killers they get another stay by a higher court and that's why it costs so much money because attorneys are just milking this till the end of time 
Yeah, that's uh, that's the unfortunate part of the criminal justice system. I mean, in a case like this, this was a slam dunk. This guy killed a lot of people. He hurt a lot of other people. And there was overwhelming evidence. I mean, even in uh, conviction, as Gil said, he gave up information. Uh, it was clearly not, you know, there, there was no question beyond a reasonable doubt that he was the killer. And once the death penalty phase had gone through its uh, its steps, I don't think it should have been challenged at point at that at some point. They had to say, you know, there really should have been uh, uh, some way of saying, look, enough is enough. It's been challenged. It's him, and let justice uh, prevail. But uh, unfortunately, well, maybe it's not unfortunate. I don't know what his uh, life ending story was. I know he died of cancer, but uh, that's all I really read. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little troubling when they, like you said, they're milking the system when lawyers are coming up with all these different things to save somebody. I mean, a scumbag like that, I just uh, leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Margaret Hearn, Sergeant Bill, who was the New York serial killer you mentioned the other day that NYPD let go and went south. Sounded very interesting case. You want to hear something, Margaret? He was actually called the shopping cart killer also. Right. And his right. name was Aaron Key. And he was uh, kidnapping and ra raping young girls in East Harlem. And a few of them he dumped in the stairwells of uh, housing projects. One, he had uh, set her on fire. One was discovered near the FDR Drive. Uh, but there were several, uh, besides um, murders, there were several rapes involved with this guy. And his name was Aaron Key. He fled down south, uh, I think, to Miami. And this was 1997, I believe. This was the first case in the NYPD history that was um, that was uh, matched by DNA. Cases were linked by DNA. This was the first case in NYPD history. And there's a TV show on um, the Discovery Channel, I think it was, um, and he it's called the Shopping Cart Killer, and his name is Aaron Key. A-R-O-N, the last name K-E-E. -E. Scott Wagner, who's frequently in the chat here, he had one of those cases. He was a case detective on one of those, and he was dying to go down to Florida to in interview him. However, two guys from Manhattan North Homicide had already gone down there, and uh, the the boss would not let him go down there. He To this day, he, uh, he really is... Uh, he probably regrets that, yeah. The, the guy who narrated the case was Bill Curtis. Remember Bill Curtis, the broadcaster? He was narrated a lot of those crime things. He, he, and, well, uh, he, did, he did one specific show. He did a lot of them. Uh, can't think of the name of it. But, yeah, I know what you're talking about. He had that real uh, television voice, you know? Yeah, he had that real deep broadcaster's voice. And I don't yeah. think it was invest. It wasn't ID. It may have been Discovery. I think it was a different channel, but. I think it uh, might have been. It could have been Nat National Geographic, maybe one of those. No, no, it wasn't no. that. Bill, but it was Bill Curtis was yeah. the um, was the yeah. narrator to the case, and uh, a lot of guys from the two three detective school. It was A and E, Crystal That's Champion. It, Thank you. That's it. Was it. A, it was A and E. That's it. That's and it, yeah. uh, you could look it up. Uh, the shopping cart killer, Aaron yeah. Key. It was a pretty interesting case, and one of the things that we learned about in the two three was Aaron Key, the serial killer was in the cell uh, in the 2-3 squad for another charge. This was way before he was arrested for the murders. And the detectives were talking about the murders. And he was he listening. He was he overheard. He was listening in. And they were talking to like, oh, man, we don't got shit on that case. We don't know. We don't. And he, so they always tell you, never, ever speak in front of a perp. Of course. And, uh, there, there it was. Here was this guy that was the serial killer that they were talking about, and he's taking it all in. And Did and he listening. sky up it when he heard that, Bill? Is that when he skied up, when he left, when he went down south? No, no. This was way before he got okay. arrested. This was months, maybe six months before. Okay. He was in the two, three um, cells for something else, you yeah. know? And his when we talked about with Gil Carrillo, too, the serial killers always being psychosexually uh, motivated. He was definitely, that was what he was all about too. You know, it was uh, very odd about the Night Stalker case. Uh, some of the victims 
he would keep them alive and then rape them. He would take out the husband and he would, uh, if they uh, basically went along with his demands that he, he would rape them or whatever, or sexually abuse them. And then he would let them live. Then others, he would kill them instantly and just mutilate the bodies. And there was, there was one victim that uh, he tried to sexually molest her and he couldn't maintain an erection. And, and uh, he wound up letting, letting her live. He was, very, very distraught about it. I mean, he nearly killed her, but she wound up surviving. So his, his, uh, his MO was so all over the map, you know, he didn't, he wasn't consistent. And, and, you know, uh, like if you look at a Ted Bundy, he went after college girls, specifically the same, uh, description, you know, they all had the same dark hair and whatever it was. Uh, this guy was, you know, he raped a 79 year old woman after she was dead. She was sexually molested after post-mortem. So uh, when you think about it, there was just, there was no rhyme or reason with this guy, which tells me, uh, you know, being an investigator, how difficult it must have been to investigate this case. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, Phil, why don't you just do a quick... Uh... Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe, we miss you. We haven't uh, heard or seen, yeah, gotta, seen you in a long time. You know, we, we haven't usually, had him for the whole year, the whole time. No, we, right, we usually like to have Joe in the chat or Joe on the show. and uh, He's got to he be busy with his case. He can, yeah, he can give that dissenting opinion. But we love, we love you, Joe, and we miss you. And Angie, thank you for all you do for us. Angie is our, our moder moderator supreme, you know. You know, folks, I just want to uh, apologize a little bit uh, and really – um, I only have the highest regard for Gil Carrillo. And uh, to me, he is a law enforcement superstar. And I just apologize. He didn't feel well tonight. And I think that, you know, uh, it was smart for to, for him to, to uh, take an early departure because uh, it, he wasn't uh, doing it. He couldn't do his best because he didn't feel well. But, you know, luckily, as I said, luckily I have a partner that likes to talk. And uh, we got through this. You know, we got... Uh, we're at almost we're almost at the hour and uh, real quick, I just got a text message from Joe. He's involved in a case uh, against uh, former Governor Elliot Spisser. Uh, I'm not going to get into it too much, but he says, "Miss you guys," and I've just been a little busy. Um, we love you, Joe, and uh, we're glad that you're uh, you're listening in. He must not be near a computer; maybe he's just near his phone. That's why he uh, he shot me the text. But I'm sure we'll be we'll be uh, back on and uh, going through a. Uh, a little fun with Joe as we, sure. uh, we have in the past, but and you know, guys, tomorrow um, for for our Patreon and for our YouTube members, we're gonna do our second cooking show with Phil, and we're gonna well, we're gonna we're gonna record it tomorrow, and then we're gonna put it out there for as I said, our Patreon and YouTube members, and Phil's gonna teach everyone how to cook veal cutlet parmesan. Yes, so I it am. should be uh, it should be an amazing show, and as I said. If you're members of either Patreon or YouTube, you're going to have it tomorrow sometime. And it's going to be our second um, cooking show that uh, that we did uh, with Phil here. Phil, final yeah. words. Final words. Tonight was, even though we didn't get him for that long, it was just an honor to have Gil Carrillo on. Like I cited earlier, the guy was uh, put on the straight and narrow by a police officer, wound up going to law enforcement. He was instrumental in solving this horrific uh, crime. Uh, hope to have him back soon. Joe Murray, we reached out to you. Uh, glad you got back to us. Hopefully we'll be seeing you again soon. And uh, tomorrow's uh, cooking segment that we're going to do, like Bill said, it's going to be veal parmesan. We're going to throw a little restaurant tip in for those people that like to go out <laughs> and dine. At the end of every one of these segments, we're going to have a little restaurant tip from my own uh, repertoire of, you know, uh, my family. We're, we're foodies. We love to go to restaurants. Uh, we've hit so many places over the years. And uh, there's sort of things, little 
little tips that you could do that uh, when you're out eating that you might want to think about and uh, maybe you'll get a better meal or better service. And we'll go over it uh, when you guys see the uh, the new episode, the latest episode. What are we going to call it, Bill? We're going to say cops in the kitchen or cop in the kitchen or something. Oh, co- co- cooking with cops or something like yeah, that. Yeah, my, yeah. My cousin Lenny that uh, is the chef over at L&B Spumoni Gardens of Brooklyn, as soon as he heard about it, he goes, cop in the kitchen. I said, that's pretty, uh, pretty good ring to it. So we'll go. Someone, we'll go. Someone's in the kitchen with Philly. Someone's in the kitchen. I know. Oh, oh, oh. Um, folks, we another a great guest that we just booked. And I think because she needs to come on early in the day, I'm going to probably record it and, uh, and uh, just tape it and then put it out later on. We just uh, booked Ashley Banfield from News Nation, former star of CNN when CNN was a good station. She was one of the reporters, but she agreed to come on, uh, on you know, police off the cuff, real crime stories, and I think she's going to be a great guest. We got a couple other guests that we're we're trying to get on. I don't want to announce it till we get a commitment from them, but we're working hard. That's one of the hardest things to really book good guests on on the show, and uh, that's what takes up a lot of time, takes up a lot of effort, takes up a lot of phone calls. And I don't want to trouble you with our troubles, but that's... Well, uh, you want to mention uh, what we're going to be doing on the 22nd of January? What are we doing? We're going to be on somebody else's podcast. We're going to be... Oh, that's right, Jimmy. We're going on Jimmy Calandra's show. Uh, uh, Bath Avenue guys, right? Uh, The Bath Avenue crew, yes. Bath Avenue crew. So he has two coppers to come on his show. So uh, we've agreed to do that. So we're going to do that and uh, we're going to have some fun. Yep. That's going to be uh, January 22nd, a Saturday at about 8 p.m. So if you guys are interested and you want to catch us on that show, just look up uh, Jimmy Calandra, Bath Avenue, Bath Avenue Story, Bath Avenue Crew. But uh, it, you you guys, it, it'll we'll tell you about it a little further as uh, we get closer to it. But it uh, should be a good night. Absolutely. So, folks, thank you so much. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is Police Off the Cuff. Uh, tuning out right now. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just